Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My, my guest today is Sarita Gupta, the vice president of the Ford Foundation's U.S. programs. Known for her policy advocacy, organizing, and building partnerships across the workers' rights and care movements, she has previously served as the executive director of Jobs with Justice and as co-director of Caring Across Generations. Gupta currently occupies the Wayne Morse Chair of Law and Politics and is visiting U of O as part of the Wayne Morse Center for Law and Politics 2021 through 2023 theme, Making Work Work. Gupta has re received several awards and accolades, including the National Women's Law Center Annual Leadership Award, the Francis Perkins Open Door Award, the Mount Holyoke College Alumni Achievement Award, and the Corporate Ethics Inter International's Benny Award. She is the co-author with Erica Smiley of The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century, published by Cornell University Press in April of 2022. Thanks, Sarita, so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you with us. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us first a little bit about your background. Well, um, as you were reading my intro, I'll just say for the last 20 plus years, I've been thinking a lot about this topic and this theme of making work work. I've been a workers' rights advocate, an organizer, a campaigner, um, and so a lot of my work has focused on expanding the rights of workers. And prior to that, what's probably important to know about me is um, I immigrated to this country as a child. Uh, my family settled in Rochester, New York, uh, which is known as Kodak City. And frankly, my childhood really planted the early seeds of why I pursued this workers' rights um, career, uh, because I grew up literally one town over from Kodak City, Kodak Park, and really saw the impacts of um, job loss as Kodak was downsizing. And really, it planted these early questions in my head of how could families who had worked for generations for a company all of a sudden lose their jobs and lose their um, financial stability. Um, and really that is a question that's stayed with me, mm. um, as well as this question of why workers don't have more of a voice in shaping what their workplaces and their communities and jobs can be like. Um, and so that's really what's gotten me on this path of work. Mm. Fascinating. So um, you are the vice president for the Ford Foundation's US programs. What do you do in that role? What's your responsibility well, in that? <laughs> well, my, I oversee grant making um, across our U.S. programs. So let me just take a step back and say that the Ford Foundation is a global social justice philanthropy. Our focus is on addressing the challenges um, associated with inequality. So what are the barriers that, you know, allow inequality to exist at the levels that we see um, in society? And so the U.S. programs is really our grant-making portfolio, and we have six programs under um, uh, U.S. as a whole. So Future of Workers is one, which I'm happy to talk about in a moment. Our gender, racial, ethnic justice, which covers immigration, reproductive justice, and mass incarceration issues. We have a civic engagement and government portfolio um, that is looking at democracy issues writ large and how we make sure people can civically participate in society and politics. Um, we have a U.S. disability rights portfolio. 
and a tech and society portfolio that's really looking at the implications of tech-driven change on our society. And finally, we have a creativity and free expression program, um, which really looks at issues of media, journalism, film, how do we create cultural narratives um, that speak to the issues of inequality. So you are, uh, in your role as the chair of the Morse Chair, you're focused on making work work. So tell us first about, as you mentioned, the Ford Foundation's Future of Workers program. Yeah, so prior to um, serving as the vice president, I was the director for two years of the Future of Workers program. And this program is really focused on how we can help modernize our labor and social protections in this country to really meet the realities of working families today, um, as well as ensuring that workers actually have a voice in not only shaping their workplace policies, but policy, government policies, and to be seen and treated and valued as real stakeholders in our economy as a whole. Um, so the program really aims to support workers' rights organizations, um, to help think about um, opportunities for policy change, the role of capital markets that shape labor markets and labor policies, um, and finally how we uh, think about tech-driven change and its implications on work. So let's talk a little bit about, I mean, just in the past two years, the global economy has, has changed in dramatic ways. Right. Um, tell us about some of the most important changes and the impacts they've had on the way people work. Sure, there have been really important trends. So one is globalization. And the impact of globalization has been that the structure and the arrangement of work, of work has dramatically shifted. So, um, you know, in the past, when I was younger, and at Kodak is a great example of this, we had mega firms that really represented workers at all different skills and income levels um, and provided benefits to that workforce, but employed a large workforce. Um, so Kodak or think General Motors. But today, more of what we're seeing is um, the fissuring of workplaces, which means we see a lot more outsourcing, subcontracting, franchising of work. In essence, um, companies are opting for a more nimble structure in which uh, they provide permanent employment to engineers or managers or sort of office staff, but the rest of the workforce is uh, more contingent. Um, and so think Uber or Lyft, or there are many examples actually in, in our economy today. Um, and that fundamental shift has had huge implications for workers, uh, both in terms of the wages and working conditions and their ability to actually collectively you know, bargain for their rights in their workplace, but also access to social benefits. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that independent contractors in this country don't have rights to unemployment insurance, for example. Um, so what that has meant is we've seen a real rise in contingent and precarious labor, as well as a rise in independent contractors. Um, so that's one trend. The second I would lift up is um, the trend of tech-driven change. So technology, uh, you know, a few years ago when I first started at the Future of Workers program, we actually changed our name. The original program was called Future of Work. Mm -hmm. And we recognized that too much of the debate about automation and the role of technology 
became centered on robots taking over, um, there would be no jobs of the future, and we recognized that we really needed to recenter workers in the conversation about the future of work. That these are decisions we can influence as a society, as people, as workers, um, and that we needed to own that and um, reshape the debate. And so I say that because tech-driven change has the possibility of job loss, but it also has the reality of creating new jobs. And the question before us is, will the new jobs be good quality jobs or will they be poor quality jobs? Will they be permanent jobs or will they be contingent jobs? Um, so there's a lot that we can shape um, as well as the role that workers can play in actually designing and governing over new technologies. So tech-driven change is another trend. Um, the third I would lift up is climate change. With climate change, uh, with so much shifting, and as we have more of a conversation of what it means to have a green economy, um, again, we're faced with um, sectors, industries that will be lost or will transition, and what the implications of that are for the creation of new jobs, again, good quality jobs, but how do you support a whole workforce to be able to transition into different types of jobs and sectors of the economy? Um, and the final thing I'll say is demographic change, that I think this is a global phenomenon, phenomena, but as we have more young people entering the workforce and a larger aging population that is actually living much longer um, than we anticipated or systems anticipated, um, it's put lots of pressure on labor markets as well as social benefits, social safety net systems. So let's talk a little bit more about the agency of workers. Yeah. So in that time, you know, when there were companies like GE and Kodak, um, the, the primary way that workers expressed their agency was through the union movement. Right. And in the past, you know, 50, 100 years, um, be, as those industries have, have uh, shrunk, um, the union movement has shrunk tremendously. So um, say something about the, I mean, because the union movement was so important in the early part of the 20th century, such an important, right. so it was, and it, you know, it, it it, it helped to build the American middle class. So what went wrong so that that, sh that shrinkage has been happening in the past 50 years or so? Sure, there's so many dynamics that contributed to the decline in union membership. So the 30s to the 60s was a really important time period when you saw um, the creation of the National Labor Relations Act, which is the legal framework for how workers can join together collectively and bargain. Um, it's important to remember, you know, this is something I've been saying in classes while I've been on campus, that that didn't just happen by accident. It really happened because workers went on strike and took actions and demanded changes and the ability to have agency and voice. So, so we have the creation of the National Labor Relations Act in the 30s alongside other New Deal policies like Social Security, unemployment insurance, and the Fair Labor Standard Act, which you know provides minimum wage and um, the 40-hour work week, um, which were all really important steps towards creating economic sustainability or financial uh, sustainability for work so many working families. And then, of course, the 60s comes around and public sector bargaining is um, 
put in place. Uh, and so we have federal employees and public sector employees, um, which mean then you have state, county, municipal employees um, who can now collectively bargain. So incredible amounts of unionization happen, and, and you're absolutely right, for so many workers, it was an absolute pathway into the middle class. And especially in the public sector, it was a really important pathway for mostly African-American workers to enter into the middle class. But then you hit this backlash starting in the 70s and 80s. Um, and, you know, actually Jobs with Justice as an organization that I used to um, be the director of, it was really started as a result of the PATCO strike, which was the air traffic controllers who went on strike in 1980, in the 80s, early 80s. And at that time, President Reagan actually uh, said, no, actually you cannot go on strike, which by law they actually couldn't, but it had never been enforced. But he was the first president to actually say, you don't have the right to strike, we will replace you if we need to, which had a real chilling effect on worker organizing. So that coupled with industry at that point coming together and forming both formal and informal structures to begin to shape policies and laws um, that could uh, frankly dampen the ability for workers to organize. Um, and that, in addition to that, we saw industry begin to build out and invest in really an anti-union industry. So the growth of a union busting sector, where today even, when whenever workers organize, management immediately calls an anti-union law firm. Um, and that has had huge impacts on making it very difficult for workers to organize in today's context. It's a rigged game for workers. They no longer have an even playing field. Not that they ever totally had an even playing field, but many of the tools that they had are no longer in place. So for employers, um, when the NLRA was first passed, employers had to, the idea was they had to actually respect the law and bargain in good faith. Today, most employers, it's just cost of business for them to um, retaliate against workers, to break the law because the penalties are so low. So. You know, I actually just met with Starbucks workers from Buffalo who were telling me that the retaliation they're experiencing is immense. Everything from captive audience meetings to being fired and threatened for organizing um, to, to even being offered promotions. So they're not in the bargaining unit. So there's a lot of different ways now in which the union process can be squished. And then even if the union is recognized, getting to a first contract is a huge huge, huge, and can be a very long process. So it's very difficult in today's context, and this all of that has contributed to why we see the decline in union uh, membership, coupled with globalization and really the outsourcing of so many jobs. And the other thing we see is that we're now in the second Gilded Age, right? Okay. So income inequality now is the largest it's been since the, the first Gilded Age. That's right. And um, this has become so extreme that there are now, and you just mentioned the Starbucks organizing, um, Amazon, um, you know, in the university it's been happening, yes. in, in the medical profession it's been happening. So there's, there's now a kind of new upsurge in union organizing. So talk a little bit about what's distinct about that and what's important about that. 
Yeah, the organ, the upsurge we're seeing is immense in that it's really, as you pointed out, happening across the economy. It's not just the low-wage sectors of the economy. Um, you know, last October was uh, termed striketober because <laughs> so many workers who had bargaining rights were going on strike, and it was very telling. Yet everything from entertainment unions to manufacturing unions to low-wage sectors um, on strike, and that organ, it's really galvanized a new type of organizing in this moment. So in addition to all the ones you mentioned from Amazon and the victory that happened last month with the Amazon Labor Union to Starbucks has 250 stores that have petitioned for a union election and they've been winning in stores across the country since Buffalo. Um, here in Eugene, six stores are actually all organizing. To Google tech workers, uh, or not too long ago, New York Times digital workers who won a union a lot in media. Um, so you really see an upsurge of this type of organizing happening. And it's really, um, you know, media lately has been talking a lot about the great resignation. And mm -hmm. often I talk about it as it's actually a great refusal. I think workers are saying, you know, we refuse to put up with jobs where we don't get paid enough, we don't have health and safety standards in place, um, we are not had, don't have access to benefits. For many, the lack of childcare supports has contributed to why they felt like they needed to change their jobs. Workers are not leaving the labor force, they are actually looking for other jobs. But then there's this growing population of workers who are saying, okay, I'm not gonna leave my job, but I'm gonna work to make it better. And that's the organizing that we're seeing today. And it is significant because it very much speaks to a very important cultural moment that we're in, which is that more and more workers today, and really the pandemic made this happen, are asking themselves, what is the purpose of work? What am I willing to risk? What do I believe I'm worth? Um, who are we valuing and who are we not valuing in our economy? And all of that questioning is also contributing to the energy around organizing right now. So that uh, the power of organizing, that energy, the key is collective bargaining. Right. So why is collective bargaining so important? And why is it important, especially now? Yeah, collective bargaining is really important because at its best, what collective bargaining is, is the ability to join together with your coworkers and be able to negotiate an enforceable agreement on wages, working conditions, and much more, by the way, which we're starting to see happen. Um, and and be able to renegotiate every few years, revisit it and renegotiate every few years. Um, it is so critical because for one thing, we've been growing, we're in a society where we're told and um, encouraged to think of ourselves as individuals and individualism is the way to go and that the issues that we're having are our private issues and somehow our own responsibility as if there's the system and the structures um, have nothing uh, to do with it. So too many workers who found it so hard to make ends meet, even before the pandemic. I mean, before the pandemic, there were over 64 million people in this country who were making less than you know $50,000 $50, a year and were struggling, living paycheck to paycheck, and somehow we're believing it was their fault versus understanding the many different laws and policies working against them, the many different challenges and barriers, the fact that this country does not have any kind of care support. We're the only advanced economy without paid family medical leave 
in the world. You know, without those kinds of supports in place, it makes it very difficult for workers to be able um, to sustain jobs and stay in the workforce. Um, and so we're learning all of that through the pandemic. Um, and I think it's really telling that workers have realized if they can collectively come together, they can actually make change, which is embedded in our history. We've always known that. But the fact that today you can see Starbucks workers join together or Amazon workers reject the idea that they should be surveilled to the point where they can't go use the restroom or have a lunch break. I mean, this, the horror stories of the working conditions of Amazon warehouse workers is appalling. And I think most people don't realize, you know, it, again, in a class earlier today, I was sharing the story of talking to workers who'd said they have a 30 minute lunch break. They work on one side of the warehouse. It takes them 20 minutes to get to the lunchroom. By the time they get back, they're already pinged for being late. So why eat? People wearing adult diapers because they can't take restroom breaks. So the dignity of work is what people are fighting for in this moment. Yes, it's about wages, but it is very much about respect and dignity. Um, and I think that's important for us as a society to recognize that people are demanding dignified lives. So let's talk about the book that you co-authored with Erica Smiley, The Future We Knew, Organizing for a yeah. Better Democracy in the 21st Century. This argument is crucial to the book. That is, that we need a much more capacious, expanded view of what collective bargaining should aim for and what it can accomplish. Tell us about that book and that project. Yeah, that's right. So the book um, was really born out of years of organizing in the worker workers' rights field. and. Frankly, being in a position where I've had the opportunity and my co-author has had the opportunity to really help seed new innovations and new approaches to organizing. So we wanted to tell a coherent story of the evolution of organizing and worker power in this moment. And so what I would lift up is, as I shared the basic definition of collective bargaining, we really posit in the book that it's important to have a more expanded view. That in fact, workers shouldn't be limited to the tools of collective bargaining only in their workplace, but be able to use those tools in every different way that they interact with the economy. Whether they're renters, whether they're uh, people with student debt, whether they're people who have other forms of debt, but the ability to come together and negotiate with any entity that has power, decision-making power over their lives that impacts their working lives, their well-being, their livelihoods overall, they should be able to do that. And so the book really sh talks about ways in which we see that happening now, um, whether it's through tenants unions forming across the country um, uh, and, and really addressing issues of evictions and rent, um, uh, rental costs to um, the importance of really taking this belief um, in collective bargaining and the ability to join together in order to, to really build a more thoughtful or preserve or strengthen a more thoughtful democracy in our country. Um, a lot of what we talk about in the book is how we've lost the daily habits of democracy. And one of the surefire ways that people have understood democracy is actually through unions and collective bargaining, that unions have historically been schools of democracy. But as we see a decline in people being able to be part of and 
PTAs or civic associations, there's a real decline in their political participation, let alone their ability and belief that they can shape their future. And so that is what we, we really try to lift up through the book, through the stories of workers who illuminate these points about the need to have an expanded view of democracy or bargaining, but also the new approaches. So as we were talking about the ways that work and work arrangements have shifted, we lift up case studies and examples of campaigns where workers are going to the ultimate profiteers. They're realizing you can't just negotiate with the franchise owner or the factory owner, that actually who profits from the products are the ones who are making the decisions, and that's really important. Um, so we have multiple examples of that. To um, the community sort of driven bargaining, like tenants unions that we talked about, to the importance of using bargaining, traditional bargaining, as a table from which you can actually expand the issues being talked about. So teachers unions around the country, not only talking about wages and conditions for teachers, but talking about the preservation of public education, talking about important issues impacting students and families that they serve, whether it's homelessness or immigration issues or others. Um, so we really are seeing the birth of a new set of strategies and approaches in this moment to building working, working power. So you've just spoken very eloquently about the this expansive view in terms of the issues that unions are thinking about, the issues that collective bargaining can impact, but it's also expansive in terms of the kinds of people that will benefit from these. So your analysis is intersectional. That's right. So why is that important? Well, we have learned over the years that we have to center race and gender and other intersectional identities if we're actually gonna make progress for workers. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, one is workers have intersectional identities. Um, unlike movements, and I always say in philanthropy, we like silo the issues, right? There's workers' rights over here, there's immigration rights here, racial justice over here, but the lived experiences of people are not siloed. So if we're gonna come up with the comprehensive solutions that people need to be able to thrive in society, we actually need to ad adopt and understand their identities, but also it's about power, that actually we fundamentally can expand power by doing that. So just a, a really good example of this um, is uh, we talk often about um, garment workers in Asia. This is one of the case studies in the book. Um, garment workers in Asia have been organizing um, for a long time. They have unions, many of them have unions. A lot of the unions are led by men, even though the majority of the workforce are women. Um, many of the women started creating what were known as safe circles because they were experiencing a gender-based violence and harassment in the workplace. But it wasn't a, a permissible topic for bargaining um, between the union and factory owners. So the women began organizing, and there was a horrible case where a woman was murdered um, for standing up to her manager um, when confronting harassment and violence. And in fact, the women began organizing a big global campaign where they focused on the profiteer, which is the brand, which was H&M. 
So they got H&M to the table um, to bargain with them and to say, let's eliminate gender-based violence and harassment in your factories. And so H&M then worked with their factories to in fact make this happen. So 5,000 women in India are now actually benefiting from this major, major agreement, which is now spreading across the industry. But you see, if we hadn't actually centered the gender and frankly caste aspect of that workforce, we wouldn't have found a way to address that very important working condition that for different reasons, because of the ways laws and policies have been built, weren't permissible topics to bargain over. And there's multiple examples like that in the US context as well. Um, so centering race and gender really matters. One other really fun example to share, just yesterday the National Women's Soccer League announced their collective bargaining agreement in which they were able to achieve pay equity. But again, as women athletes, their ability to talk about the, the gendered nature of pay in the industry. But then what was fascinating is because the men's team and the women's team had come together and talked about this and created transparency, they recognized that the women got childcare supports during tournaments, but men did not. So what was won in the collective bargaining agreement was pay equity, but men also won childcare supports during tournaments. It sounds small, but it's so meaningful for those workers. But again, if you center these issues, what you can demand for, what you can negotiate war around is, is expanded. And that's how we build power, and that's how we make sure we're truly making a difference in people's lives. So we're coming to the end of our time. This will be my last question. So you are the current Wayne Morse Chair. Yes. Tell me what you've been doing as the Wayne Morse Chair. What have been the activities that you've been involved with? It has been so amazing to serve in this capacity as the chair. I've been able to go to classes and give lectures. Um, I've been able to meet with different unions on campus and learn about the work happening. The other day I had an opportunity to go spend time with Pekun and learn about their amazing organizing model and all that they've been building out. So all in all, it's been an amazing learning journey for me. Um, it's been an opportunity for me to test my own assumptions. You know, I loved being in the classroom and being able to talk to students and say, hey, what do you, when I say labor or union today, what comes to mind? And let me tell you, the cultural shift I was talking about earlier is real. I mean, I feel like the answers I would have gotten 10 years ago was very different than the answers I got today, where people could point to Starbucks and Amazon and all the workers in motion and really own and understand the importance of collective bargaining. Um, so it's been a fantastic trip on that level. The ability to really um, engage with everyday people about how they're thinking about what it means, how do we make work work, but more importantly, how we connect the dots between work and the importance of voice and agency in work with the fragility of our democracy and the connection to our democracy, and most importantly, why all of this is important in the first place, which is because people want to live with dignity, agency, and joy. Well, on that note, um, I want to thank you, Sarita, for speaking with us today. It's been a real pleasure, and it's we're, we're all very fortunate to have you as the Morse Chair this year. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Sarita Gupta, the Vice President of the Ford Foundation's U.S. programs. She is serving as this year's Wayne Morse Chair as part of the Wayne Morse Center for Law and Politics 2021 through 2023 theme, Making Work Work. Thanks so much for watching.